worship an awesome God in the blue states. The, the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim. Not God bless America, God damn America. My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself is now being redefined and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Welcome to the history of evangelicals and politics, the Obama era. This is episode five, The Christian Right. I'm John Fia. In August 1980, Republican presidential candidate Ronald Reagan came to the Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas, to give a speech at the Religious Roundtable's National Affairs Briefing. The Religious Roundtable was founded by conservative Christian activist Ed McAteer to give voice to evangelical leaders concerned about the fate of Christian America in the wake of the social, cultural, and demographic changes that we discussed in our last episode. Reagan's invitation letter was signed by McAteer and two other Dallas-area evangelicals. Tele-evangelist James Robeson, whose communication director Mike Huckabee helped organize the event, and Cowboys coach Tom Landry, a popular spokesperson for evangelical causes in the 1980s. The invitation said that when Reagan came to Dallas, he would gain insight on the domestic crisis that is morally enslaving our country. Speakers at this event included Adrian Rogers, the pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, and one of the organizers behind the conservative takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention the year before. Paul Weirich, a longtime conservative political organizer. D. James Kennedy, the pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, who was widely known in evangelical circles for the evangelism explosion model of sharing the gospel. San Diego writer and pastor Tim LaHaye was also there. You may recall that we met his wife, Beverly, in our last episode. Virginia Beach broadcaster Pat Robertson spoke at this event. He was known best around the country at the time for hosting the 700 Club. Bill Bright, the founder of the evangelical ministry to college students known as Campus Crusade for Christ, was there. And so were U.S. Senators Bill Armstrong of Colorado and Jesse Helms of North Carolina. Jimmy Carter, the sitting president of the United States and a self-professed born-again Christian, and John Anderson, a U.S. representative from Illinois and a member of the Rockford Evangelical Free Church, who was mounting a third-party run for the presidency in 1980, were also invited to speak. Both declined the offer. 
Robeson introduced Reagan to the crowd of 15,000 expected evangelicals with the fervor of a revival preacher delivering an altar call. The Baptist preacher said that America was the greatest country in the world because of its heritage and its foundation. He quoted Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. For those gathered in Reunion Arena, there was no mistaking who were the righteous and who were the wicked. Robeson thundered on, there is no way you can separate God from government and still have a successful government. God is the ultimate authority. Robeson railed on the idea of separation of church and state, calling it a godless interpretation of the Constitution that Jesus Christ would never have endorsed. By this point, he was screaming into the microphone and waving his Bible. This was a Jeremiah disguised as an introduction of a presidential candidate. Reagan was seated behind the podium next to D. James Kennedy, and he was loving every minute of it. He leapt to his feet when Robeson hammered home his points and clapped and cheered as the Texas preacher condemned the overreach of the federal government, a Reagan campaign talking point. Twelve minutes later, when Reagan finally got up to speak, he began with a story about his recent campaign speech to the veterans of foreign wars. A few days ago, I addressed a group in Chicago and received their endorsement for my candidacy, he told the Dallas faithful. Now I know this is a nonpartisan gathering, and so I know you can't endorse me. But I only brought this up because I want you to know that I endorse you and what you are doing. The crowd went wild. But what most people don't know was that Reagan's famous line about the endorsing of the Christian right was not his own. Robeson fed it to him on the car ride from the airport with former Texas Governor John Connolly. As Robeson would later tell the story, I told Reagan that it would probably be wise if his opening comment would be, I know this is nonpartisan, so you can't endorse me, but I want you to know that I endorse you. Oh, he loved that, Robeson added. Reagan wrote it down and said, that's great. I'm going to use it. And so began the relationship between conservative evangelicals and the Republican Party. 41 years later, it is still going strong. In this episode, we cover this relationship as it unfolded over the last two decades of the 20th century. We are in the process of building a historical foundation for our upcoming reconstruction of the story of evangelicals in politics in the age of Obama, a period I am defining as roughly 2004 to 2016. That's right. We're just getting started, folks. In next week's episode, our last background episode, we will examine the first term of the George W. Bush administration. Then, in subsequent episodes, we will take a deep and prolonged dive into evangelicals and politics in the Obama era. 
beginning with Obama's election to the United States Senate. There was one more person present for Reagan's Dallas speech that I failed to mention so far. As we saw in our last episode, Jerry Falwell was the pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, the host of the Old Time Gospel Hour on syndicated television, and the president of the fledgling Liberty Baptist College. For the last five years or so, he had been at the forefront of the fight to overturn Roe v. Wade, keep the IRS out of Christian academies and colleges like Bob Jones University, return prayer and Bible reading to public schools, and teach children about what he and his followers believe to be the Judeo-Christian roots of the American nation, a view of American history that was being undermined, he believed, by the forces of secular humanism. In 1979, Falwell founded an organization to further his agenda called the Moral Majority. Though Falwell claimed that the moral majority was made up of religious people of all faiths and denominations who were concerned about the moral decline of the country, and many historians have actually pointed to Catholic, Jewish, and Mormon representation in the organization, the moral majority was made up overwhelmingly of Protestant fundamentalists. Historian Daniel Williams, one of our writers here at Current, found that 90% of moral majority members were Baptist, and most of them came from the ranks of the separatist fundamentalist Baptist movement in which Falwell came of age. Falwell, I might add, was a disciple of Wheaton, Illinois, and later Murfreesboro, Tennessee fundamentalist John R. Rice. 3% of the moral majority membership was from the Southern Baptist Convention and virtually no Pentecostals or charismatic evangelicals were part of the constituency. Many older evangelicals, such as Billy Graham and those affiliated with the National Association of Evangelicals, the so-called neo-evangelicals, remain cautious about getting too close to Falwellian politics. Graham had been burned by a close relationship with Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal and was committed to never let politics soil the gospel message again. When asked about Falwell and the Christian right, Graham said, the hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. Meanwhile, hardcore separatist fundamentalists like Bob Jones Jr., believe Falwell was violating the doctrine of biblical separation by working alongside non-fundamentalists, especially Catholics and mainline Protestants, and participating in the worldly practice of political engagement. Ministers were supposed to come out from among them and be ye separate, the Bible said. They were supposed to focus on preaching the gospel of eternal life, not trying to solve society's problems through politics. Jones called Falwell the most dangerous man in America today as far as biblical Christianity is concerned. Falwell remained undeterred by these criticisms and used his growing platform to get conservative Christians registered to vote so they could pull a lever for Reagan and other evangelical and fundamentalist friendly candidates. God would restore Christian America 
one vote at a time. At first glance, it might seem odd that Falwell and conservative evangelicals would rally around a divorced Hollywood actor who took a pro-choice position on abortion while he served as governor of California in the 1960s, especially when the current president, Jimmy Carter, was a born-again Christian and Baptist Sunday school teacher. But by 1980, it was clear that Carter did not see the integration of faith and politics in the same way that the burgeoning Christian right did. Falwell and others were appalled, for example, when Carter sat for an interview with Playboy magazine and admitted that he occasionally struggled with lust for women other than his wife. Carter personally opposed abortion, but he, like many other Southern Baptists at the time, did not believe government should be legislating morality. In other words, he supported the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade. And when the court required Christian academies in the South to desegregate or else lose their tax-exempt status, Carter supported the decision, much to the dismay of the fundamentalists who saw the Green v. Connolly and Bob Jones v. the United States cases as a sign of big government intrusion on local religious practice. Of course, the Carter administration had its non-religious problems as well. Many conservatives believe the president's decision to return the Panama Canal to Panama, his botched handling of the Iranian hostage crisis, and his response to a struggling economy were all signs of weak leadership. It was time for a change. Ronald Reagan knew how to speak the language of the Christian right, and the Christian right loved Reagan because he championed their causes. It seemed to be a match made in heaven. Reagan believed America was exceptional. He regularly invoked John Winthrop's 1630 sermon, A Model of Christian Charity, in which the founding governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony described his settlement as a city upon a hill. Reagan, by the way, added the word shining to the phrase, merging the city upon a hill with Jesus's call in the Sermon on the Mount for Christians to be the light of the world. On the abortion front, Reagan appointed evangelical pro-life activists and pediatrician C. Everett Koop to the post of Surgeon General. He supported constitutional amendments to return prayer to public schools and prohibit abortion. And though the Christian right was not happy, when Reagan appointed pro-choice Justice Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court, they cheered his nomination of pro-life conservative Robert Bork. The Senate approved O'Connor, and thanks to a Delaware senator named Joe Biden, who headed the Judiciary Committee, rejected the nomination of Robert Bork. Reagan's statements on race also fit well with the views of the Christian right. For example, in 1986, Reagan vetoed the Comprehensive Apartheid Act, a law passed with overwhelmingly bipartisan support that would levy economic sanctions on South Africa. Both the House and the Senate overrode the veto by significant majorities. About a year earlier, Falwell visited South Africa and pronounced Bishop Desmond Tutu, 
the spiritual leader in the fight against apartheid, as a phony claiming those working for racial justice in the country were communist agitators. One of the ministers who traveled with Falwell on his trip to South Africa was Jerry Prevo, an independent Baptist pastor from Anchorage, Alaska. When anti-apartheid protesters marched outside of Prevo's Anchorage Baptist Church, the pastor sent three of his own parishioners, dressed as devils, to join the protesters, carrying signs praising communism and Satanism. The goal was to discredit the protesters by connecting them with the Soviet Union and the devil. Prevo got caught and was forced to admit he was behind the stunt. Today, he is the president of Liberty University. Reagan opened his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the town where the Ku Klux Klan murdered three civil rights activists in 1964. As historian Randall Balmer writes, Reagan, the master of symbolism, might have used the macabre setting in Philadelphia to put to rest any lingering suspicions that his campaign would appeal to racism in any form. Instead, in front of 20,000 white people, many of them waving Confederate flags and chanting, we want Reagan, the candidate invoked the defiant battle cry of George Wallace and countless other segregationists. I believe in states' rights, he said. Reagan also went to Bob Jones University and chided the IRS for interfering with the school's right to segregate based on race. Although, of course, he didn't quite put it that way. He called the fundamentalist Baptist university that did not admit single black students or permit interracial dating a great institution. Reagan's remarks on race no doubt resonated with Falwell. In 1954, the Lynchburg Baptist opposed Brown v. Board of Education. Ten years later, he opposed the Civil Rights Act, and he denounced Martin Luther King Jr. as a communist. How much did the moral majority actually accomplish in their 1980s culture war? When Ronald Reagan left office in 1988, Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. The internet would soon make pornography more accessible than ever. The gay rights movement was posing a threat to traditional views of marriage. Prayer and Bible reading in public schools was still unconstitutional. Drug use had not subsided, and crime had not dissipated in any significant way. And some of Reagan's judicial appointees were not as conservative as many had hoped. Reagan himself was caught up in the Iran-Contra scandal. Nancy Reagan was consulting astrologers. And few members of the Christian right held prominent positions in the presidential administration. Reagan biographer Lou Cannon claimed that a White House staffer told him that the administration's approach to the Christian right came straight from the movie The Godfather. Hold your friends close and hold your enemies closer. We want to keep the moral majority type so close to us that they can't move their arms. Another staffer added that the only way the Christian right's leaders could enter the White House would be through the back door. 
Falwell returned to preaching and the work of a college president. He closed the moral majority in 1989. 10 years later, in 1999, two of Falwell's closest lieutenants in the moral majority, Ed Dobson and Cal Thomas, reflected soberly on their experience with Falwell in a book titled Blinded by Might, Can the Religious Right Save America? They concluded that the answer to the subtitles question was a definitive no. Dobbs and Thomas admitted that the political strategy they helped to forge in the 1980s had failed. As Thomas put it, in a reference to Palm Sunday, who wanted to go ride into the Capitol on the back of an ass when one could go first class in a private jet and be picked up and driven around in a chauffeured limousine? Thomas, who parlayed his moral majority fame into a nationally syndicated newspaper column, did not mince words when he disparaged the evangelical pursuit of political power. Christian faith is about truth, he tells his readers. And whenever you try to mix power and truth, power usually wins. Through his years with Falwell, Thomas learned how power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. It is not only seductive, but it also affects the judgment of the one who takes it. Thomas warned his evangelical readers how the chase for political power threatens the spread of the gospel. He quoted the late Catholic priest Henry Nouwen, the temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest temptation of all. Thomas pointed to the myriad ways in which the moral majority and the Christian right agenda that it spawned played to the fears of white evangelicalism. For example, moral majority fundraising letters always followed a basic formula. Thomas described it this way. First, they identify an enemy, homosexuals, abortionists, Democrats, or liberals in general. Second, the enemies are accused of being out to get us or to impose their morality on the rest of the country. Third, the letter assures the reader that something will be done. And fourth, to get this job done, please send money. The larger Christian right movement continued after the closing of the moral majority. Televangelist Pat Robertson mounted a presidential campaign in 1988 that managed to win second place at the Iowa caucuses behind Kansas Senator Bob Dole and ahead of the eventual nominee, George H.W. Bush, the vice president of the United States. Though Robertson's campaign quickly fizzled after a fifth place finish in the New Hampshire primary, he had raised enough money to found a new political action organization that he called the Christian Coalition. Robertson hired Ralph Reed to run the Christian Coalition. Reed was a 27-year-old PhD student in American history at Emory University and a recent convert to evangelical Christianity. Reed brought a new approach to Christian right politics. Rather than try to win the White House, although Reed was certainly interested in doing that too, he urged conservative evangelicals to get involved locally. 
He told Christianity Today magazine that while most political operatives think in two-year cycles, I think in quarter centuries. Change would take time, and it would come through grassroots activism and retail politicking. The Christian coalition distributed voter guides in churches and used Sunday morning worship services to register voters. Reed encouraged evangelicals to run for school boards and county and state offices. By controlling the ballot box, Christian morality could be restored to American life. As Reed put it, we think the Lord is going to give us this nation back one precinct at a time, one neighborhood at a time, and one state at a time. We're not going to win it all at once with some kind of millennial rush at the White House. In its first 12 years, from the founding of the Moral Majority to the creation of the Christian Coalition, the Christian right operated under two presidents, Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Both of these presidents generally shared the Christian right's moral view of the country. Reagan certainly more than Bush, but both men offered the Christian right moments of enthusiasm and disappointment. With the election of Bill Clinton in 1992, however, the movement was forced to operate from a position of resistance. In fact, the Christian right seemed to gain strength from such an oppositional stance. It rode the wave of Newt Gingrich's 1994 Republican takeover of the House of Representatives, found new friends in conservative talk radio hosts such as Rush Limbaugh, seized on Clinton's many moral failures, and criticized his support of safe, legal, and rare abortions, including his veto of a bill to ban partial birth abortions. Moreover, Clinton's wife Hillary was a feminist who blamed attacks on her husband on the work of a vast right-wing conspiracy that was trying to undermine Clinton's presidency. When Hillary appeared with Bill on 60 Minutes during the 1992 campaign to rebut claims that he had had an affair with Jennifer Flowers while he served as governor of Arkansas, Hillary claimed that she was not some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. The Christian right went nuts. Hillary was a threat to traditional gender roles long championed by the movement's leaders. Falwell even used his old-time gospel hour to promote the Clinton Chronicles, a documentary portraying the Clintons as embezzlers, cocaine addicts, drug smugglers, and serial killers. Though the Washington Post described the film as bizarre and unsubstantiated documentary, and the New York Times panned it as a hodgepodge of sometimes crazed charges, Falwell's endorsement gave it instant credibility among conservative evangelicals. In 1998, when America learned that Bill Clinton had an affair with 22-year-old White House intern Monica Lewinsky and then lied about it under oath, the Christian right pounced. Clinton, they argued, was morally unfit to hold office and must be impeached immediately. Falwell told USA Today that political leaders were required to flee from all appearances of evil and added that such standards were 
immensely higher for those who invoke the name of Christ, as Bill Clinton does. In an opinion piece for the conservative magazine Human Events, Gary Bauer, the president of the Family Research Council, wrote that Clinton's lies about the Lewinsky affair were corrupting the morals of American young people. These children cannot be set adrift into a culture that tells them that lying is okay, that fidelity is old-fashioned, and that character doesn't count. In an op-ed in the Washington Post, Franklin Graham, the son of evangelist Billy Graham, argued that Clinton's private morality should have public consequences. Perhaps the strongest critic of Clinton's moral indiscretions was James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family and a popular Christian right radio host. In a September 1998 letter to his supporters, Dobson made it clear not only that Clinton was unqualified for the presidency, but also that his affair with Lewinsky was a sign that the moral foundation of the nation was eroding. What alarmed me most through this whole episode, Dobson wrote, has been the willingness of my fellow citizens to rationalize the president's behavior even after they suspected and later knew that he was lying. According to Dobson, America had not only elected a liar, they had also elected an adulterer, a draft dodger, and a marijuana smoker. The mainstream media, he said, became enamored with Bill Clinton in 1992 and sought to convince the American people that character doesn't matter. But as it turns out, Dobson added, character does matter. You can't run a family, let alone a country, without it. How foolish to believe that a person who lacks honesty and moral integrity is qualified to lead a nation and the world. Dobson closed with a quote from the Bible. In the book of James, the question is posed, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? The answer is no. Gary Bauer, Franklin Graham, and James Dobson were all diehard Donald Trump supporters in 2016 and 2020. Stay tuned. The History of Evangelicals and Politics is produced by Casey Lehman. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button.